today we're going to take a bit of time out and, and do a slightly different sermon. Uh, we're going to consider that question, how to read the Old Testament. Uh, Steve so helpfully pointed out for us a story all about one character. How should we faithfully, accurately, appropriately read the Old Testament? I was listening to a sermon uh, the last couple of weeks, a sermon from a month or so ago by a, a local preacher, and uh, he started with this line. He said, help me, I want to change my life. Help me. I want to change my life. He said some of all of us find ourselves in times and places and spaces where we don't want to be, maybe addictions, perhaps relationships that are broken, financial distress, whatever it might be. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, all right, okay, where, where are we going to go with this? I mean, that sounds pretty good so far. He went to the story of David and Goliath and he said, David changed. David was one day a young shepherd lad, not much to you know, not much to him, and then he changed to become the mighty giant slayer, the one who killed Goliath. And so we need to be like David. See, David, he knew the source of change. He had the motivation to change. He knew how to speak the words that bring about change. We should be like David. Listening to another sermon, uh, the person, as, as far as I could work out, was preaching on Psalm 45, verses 16 and 17. They say this, Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. And he said, I am called to live, we are called to live in such a way that the ceiling of our lives, the, the highest point we can reach, becomes the floor of the next generation. Success, he said, is living in such a way that we might create a platform for the next generation to win in the kingdom of God. Now, now by the way, in case you haven't gotten, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you some examples of how not to read the Old Testament. We're starting there first, just in case you're wondering where we're going. Perhaps closer to home, Jeremiah chapter 29 uh, is fairly regularly quoted these days. Jeremiah 29.11 used to be a bit more common, and you might have heard it before, right? Of plans for you, said God, plans for good and not for evil. I mean, it's it's, it's a very motivational poster. You might, you, I'm sure you've seen it somewhere like that before. But these days, Jeremiah 29.7 is really kind of popular. Uh, Seek the good of the city that you are in. And there's this whole theology of mission built around that one verse that the mission of God is for us to do good in the city that we live in. And that's what we're on about. How do you read the Old Testament? How do you read it in a way that is faithful? I mean, typically, let's be honest here, it's presented as not much more than a rule book or perhaps a series of examples, some role models. If they did good, we should be like them. If they did bad, we should just ignore them. It's often presented a bit like this. Now, I'm conscious, and this is where not having my roving mic's going to let me down. Uh, but anyway, we'll try it. That's very small, isn't it? Let's see what technology can do for us. Uh, here we go. There we go. This is how the Old Testament is often presented. All those little dots along the bottom are just each individual story. It's taken as its own little discrete moment. And so you have Adam and Eve right, right back at the start. How to avoid making bad decisions. Right, Noah, how to follow instructions. I mean, that's the book you need when you're doing an Ikea run. Uh, Abraham, how to not sacrifice your son. Thank you, Abraham. Joseph, how to forgive mean people. I quite like Moses, how to lead a group of whiny people. Oh, that's, 
That's a good one. David, how to be brave for boys. Esther, how to be brave for girls. Samson, how to avoid losing your superpowers. I mean, that's what we all want to read in the Bible, right? You get to Jonah, Jonah, how to be obedient. Jesus, how to be extra obedient. And then the New Testament is just memory verses and motivational psalms, right? I mean, that's motivational posters. And the the Bible as a whole, and the Old Testament in particular, is so often presented that way. The biggest problem is that that is not how the Bible presents itself. That The Bible doesn't think of itself as a series of random, disconnected items that happen that somehow are going to teach us some rules for living. Now, if you remember last week, if you were here, I gave you a little bit of a teaser. There's two big principles that you need to remember. Now, I'm going to cover a fair amount now and throw a whole lot of ideas at you. By all means, take notes. You've got a handout, I hope, and there's an outline there. Uh, we are going to do some uh, one or two case studies depending on time at the end. So we'll, we'll put some flesh on it, but we've got to start with the principles. There are two big principles that you need to know, and the first one is this. This is how the Bible presents itself. The Bible is one big rescue story. It is one big story. It's not a whole series of little stories. From cover to cover, it's one story. Our problem, I think, often is that we just see how many different genres there are in the Bible. You go, well, there's, there's poetry, there's proverbs, there's prophecy, there's all these stories. They're just random, right? But we're familiar with that. Who, who knows the Lord of the Rings? Who's come across the Lord of the Rings before? Who's read the book? All right, okay, very good. Uh, moment of truth. Who's watched the movies and not read the books? Yeah, okay, all right, very good. The Lord of the Rings is like that. There's a whole lot of story. There's a whole lot of poetry in it. I mean, a bunch of that's even in Elvish, so we can't even understand it, let alone know what it's about. There's prophecy, There's, but it's all contained in what is clearly one story. We're familiar with this. That's the first principle. The Bible is one big rescue story. The second principle is this. The Bible is one big story about Jesus. It's one big rescue story about Jesus. We read it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's one story because it has one author. The Bible was spoken by God. Now, it was written over the course of a few thousand years by a whole lot of different people, and yet every single one of them, as they wrote, it was God-breathed. It's God's word. One author, one story, and it's about Jesus. Paul said to Timothy, you from infancy have known the scriptures. It would have been the Old Testament that he had. That's it, the Old Testament. The Old Testament that is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible is more like this one. There you go, I think it's already up. There you go. Don't worry about the text so much. I mean, you're not going to be able to see it. But notice the picture, right? the lines that point forwards through to that culmination at the cross where Jesus enters into our world and died for sin and rose again to new life. And so the key principle, the question that we ask as we read the Old Testament is, how does it point us to Jesus? How does it point us to him? How does it teach us about him first before we come anywhere near thinking about ourselves? There's all sorts of ways that the Old Testament will teach us about Jesus. It just advances the plot for starters. I mean, if, if we just had the story of Jesus, you'd go, well, why is there a world in the first place? 
Okay, you've got to have Genesis 1 and 2, right? Okay, well, we've got a world, but why is it a messed up world? Well, you've got to have Genesis 3, right? Well, why does God even care about saving the world? Well, you go through the rest of Genesis. You hear the promises made. You hear, why do we... You just need the Old Testament to tell you the plot of how we get to Jesus. But we can learn more than just the story, if I can say that. It is the story. We also get a shadow in the Old Testament of who Jesus was going to be. You know what shadows are like. You, you, you kind of get a vague feel for what it's going to be. You don't get to see any of the details. You, if you had to guess, you'd probably get it wrong. But you begin to see, you begin to understand. You get imagery and language, vocabulary. You understand the role, the person, who the saviour of God was going to be through the Old Testament. We learn about Israel. And Jesus is the true Israel. We learn about prophets. We learn about kings. We learn about priests, all of whom Jesus is. We learn about the temple and sacrifices. Does all this language sound familiar? It's all Old Testament language. We wouldn't know it without that. We learn about Jesus through promises and prophecies. The Old Testament is full of them. God speaking and Jesus fulfilling as we point towards him through promise and through prophecy. And we learn about Jesus through the truths that are spoken. There's some things that aren't any of the others, but they're just real, they're true. Perhaps commands or doctrine. Okay, so the principle is one big rescue story about Jesus. And so Jesus in Luke 24, if you want to look it up later on, 25 to 27 or 44 to 45, as he's talking to his disciples, he explains himself to them through the Old Testament. This is all written about him. Okay, how do we do it? How do we read Psalm 45 or 1 Samuel 3 and point it to Jesus and read it appropriately? Let me give you a little how-to. This isn't anything particularly special. It's not out of the Bible. It's me giving you some suggestions. I'm sure you'll find your own way in time as well. Here's what you could do. You've got these written down. Number one, pray. When you come to read the Old Testament, like when you come to read the New Testament, pray. And it's not just because the names are going to be hard to read. God help me get through them, right? It's pray because it's a spiritual exercise. This is God's word that you are speaking. Sorry, that he is speaking, that you are reading, that you are engaging with. Pray. Read it. Kind of obvious. And if you want, read it twice or three times. That's okay. You're not going to suffer from it. In fact, you may have noticed by now that most of our sermons, we end up reading through the sermon passage at least twice because someone gets up and read it and then the preacher usually then reads through it as well. Thirdly, work out the context for the bit of the Bible that you're reading. Now, I've got to underline this one. This is the hardest one. It's the one we skip the most often and it's the one that gets you into the most trouble if you don't do it. You've got to work out the context. What is happening around this bit of the Bible that I am reading? Did you know that in the Bible there's a verse that says, don't do that? It's a pretty useful verse, actually. If you take it out of context, oh, you want to buy a motorbike, Bible says don't do that. Sorry. Anything. You want to know, Bible says don't do that. I mean, if I take, of course, it's a silly example, right? Clearly the context is going to determine, but, but it shows the point. You take it out of its context. You can make the Bible say anything you want, I reckon. I mean, there's a verse that says, whatever your right hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Well, I'm a fighter, right? So clearly that's telling me I've just got to punch more people. I mean, it's just... 
Revelation 19.10, by the way, if you're wondering, that's don't do it. And an angel is standing before John and John bows down to worship and the angel says, don't do that. Oh, you give us some context and all of a sudden it just, the meaning is there. So it means you've got to work out what's this bit mean in the verses that I'm looking at, which usually means you need to understand the chapter that you're looking at, which usually means you have to understand the book that you are reading, which usually means you need to be able to place the book in the whole Bible. Ah, that's so much harder work than just don't do it, right? So as you're going to read the Old Testament, I'd encourage you, before you start on a book, read up about it. Find a commentary, a study Bible, some little notes. Come and ask me or Joe or Matt Payne. I mean, he's got a great library. I'm sure he'll find a book for you that'll be really useful to orient you to where this passage is. Where does it fit into the big picture? You've got to know that before you can get any further. Context. Okay, number four. Uh, spend some time to work out the themes in the passage. Just what sort of things are in here? And we'll, again, we'll come to an example in a moment. That'll help you as you start thinking about Jesus. How do these passages connect? Uh, number four, I think it is in your handout. I numbered them differently. Does the New Testament quote this passage? That's just a cheat sheet. Because if the New Testament quotes it, you just go and read that and see what it is that they did with it. Perfect. Five, then, what does it teach about Jesus? And six, what does it teach about our place in God's rescue plan? Okay, shall we do an example? Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac. So I flick to it, Genesis 22. We've already prayed. We won't pray again, but we are going to read it. Okay, so point one, pray. Point two, read the passage. Genesis chapter 22, page 19 in the Pew Bibles. And let's see what this has to teach. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. While I and the boy go over there, we'll worship, we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up. He said to his father, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! <laughs> Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. 
Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. To this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now if we were reading the Bible in this moralistic sense and we just plonk ourselves into Abraham's shoes, we might well end up, I don't know, right? You've You've got to be prepared to kill your son. I don't know. You've got to sacrifice everything for God, perhaps. Or if you sacrifice everything for God, he will bless you. I have heard on the mountain the Lord will provide. Therefore, any time you have a need, you've just got to find the right mountain and God will give it to you. I've heard that sermon. Well, what's the context? Let's do the work we need to do. What's the context for Genesis 22? Clearly, Genesis 1 through to 21. So God has made the world. Sin has entered into the world. God has begun the rescue plan. He's made promises to Abraham. And one promise in particular stands out. He made a promise to Abraham that through this one son, through Isaac, he would bless the entire world. Abraham had already had another son, by the way, with with a different woman. And God said, no, not that one. This one, Isaac, he is the one that I will bless the world through. Now go and kill him. I don't know if it struck you as weird. It, It did me. Go and kill him. And Abraham went, okay. I mean, you want to be sure that it was God speaking to you that time, right? I wonder where Sarah is in the story. <laughs> you, you don't see her. Perhaps that's why it was three days away where they were going to, right? She, she doesn't know. I'm going to sacrifice him there for me. What are the themes that we see in this chapter? Well, clearly there's sacrifice. Clearly there's faith. Abraham's trust in God is phenomenal. There's this picture of a lamb for an offering. There's blessing and promise. There's Abraham's offspring. Now, does the New Testament quote Genesis chapter 22? Uh, It does. It's it's kind of why I chose the chapter. It's a little bit cheating. I got to pre-choose, but anyway. Now, our pew Bibles aren't particularly helpful at this point. Not because of the text. The text is fantastic. Because of the way they're laid out. If For your study at home, you really want a Bible that has a cross-reference. So down the middle of it, it's just going to have a whole stack of passages and then little letters throughout that kind of tell you if this passage is referenced somewhere else. It's just a cheat sheet. So I know that Hebrews chapter 11 references Genesis 22 because in my Bible at home, I just read through those references down the middle of the column and when is one of them a New Testament one? Yeah, that one is. I'm going to go and look it up. What does it say? You don't have to somehow magically know the whole Bible. Other people have done the work for you. 
Genesis chapter 22 is referenced in Hebrews verse chapter 11, verses 17 on. So flick over to it. This one's worth looking up. Hebrews chapter 11, and you'll find that uh, 1169. Thank you, Cheryl. 1169. There you go. Hebrews chapter 11. If you're using a pure Bible, which hopefully you're not, because you're using a Bible with cross-references, in which case you have to look it up yourself. Does the New Testament reference this passage? Well, it does. Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll go from verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. There's our story. Excellent. That's referencing it, right? What's he going to teach us about it? He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Now all of a sudden, the theme on view is resurrection. Is the dead being brought... You can't fault Abraham for his logic. I mean... I don't know that I would have arrived there, but his logic is pretty good. God promised me that the blessings are going to come through Isaac. Now God has told me to kill Isaac. Therefore, God must be about to raise Isaac back from the dead. It's pretty good logic. Here is Abraham held up for us in Hebrews 11 as a model of faith. So actually Hebrews is telling us to kind of do what we started at the start saying don't do. Don't just be, I want to be like Abraham. Well, in fact, we're now being told, do be like Abraham. Have the faith of Abraham. Trust God's word like Abraham did. But there's more in there as well, isn't there? What does Genesis 22 teach us about Jesus? Well, it advances the plot, except that it kind of doesn't. You could just pull Genesis 22 out and you wouldn't even notice it was gone. The, The plot would just carry on. We go Genesis 21, Genesis 23, Isaac gets married and... If I said I want to tell you a story about a son, the only son, the only beloved son of the father, who would climb the mountain carrying on his back the wood that would be the means of his own death, who would be taken up onto that mountain and through that death would be offered as a sacrifice to God the father... What if I tell you that I wanted to tell you a story about the lamb that God provided? The lamb that God killed in the place of the one who deserved it instead? What if I said that I want to tell you the story about life after death? Of that one who was sacrificed being brought back to life and through him blessing coming to the whole world? Whose story am I telling you? That's the story of Isaac, isn't it? but it's the story of Jesus. Now, if you only had the story of Isaac and you tried to look forward and work out what Jesus would be, you couldn't do it. But we live this side. We look back and through Jesus we see Isaac and we go, yes, we are learning about the true lamb, the sacrifice that God provided. Hebrews 11 tells us to be like Abraham, to trust like he did, that God's provision will occur. It's not go up to the mountain and God will give you whatever you want. 
It's trust God that his sacrificial lamb will die in your place. I almost identify more with Isaac in this story. Whose story am I telling you now? Bound, headed for death, unable to free himself. Desperately turning to the father and saying, where's the lamb who will die in my place? See, we see God at work in his son. On the mountain, God did provide the lamb. He truly did provide the sacrifice that was required. The one who died in my place, in your place. The one who, just like Abraham thought God was going to do of Isaac, God did of him instead, who raised Jesus back to life. And through whom God truly brought about that promise, blessing to the whole world through him. And so have the faith of Abraham. Trust God that his word is sure and his promise will be carried out. Genesis 22. Now I had two other case studies lined up. Uh, Psalm 23 which I, I chose because we, it's so easy to read ourselves into it. It's very well known, right? I mean, you ever heard it? As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare it. And we just go, yes, that's me. What a great promise. But should we? Isn't it about Jesus? But for the sake of time, we're not going to do it. You can take it as homework. Psalm 23, have a go at it. How is this psalm first and foremost about Jesus? And I'll give you the the just absolute key, the clue to it, the context. And the context is those little words at the start of the psalm that we usually ignore. Psalm 23, it begins a psalm of David. There's the key. This is a psalm of the King of God. It's a psalm about Jesus, not about us. The other one that I had prepared was Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 7. All right, seek the good of the city. However, again, for the sake of time, I mean, we, we could, but we won't. Uh, in your handout, you'll see there's a little web address. Uh, someone else has wrote a fantastic article that I think if you want to engage with how to read prophecy, uh, go there and read it. There's a couple of printed copies up the back if you really don't want website uh, kind of stuff and it's linked to in our Facebook as well. Go and look those up. Uh, do some more work with those. I want to leave you with Genesis 22. I hope today's been helpful and useful for you that it removes some of the fear of reading the Old Testament, that it propels you to do it. Please don't leave the first half of the story behind. The second half doesn't make sense without it. But I want to leave you with Genesis 22. Have the faith of Abraham to trust the Lord God Almighty that on the mountain the lamb was provided for your sin, that without that lamb you are the one who is still bound and who will still die and that with the sacrifice of Jesus you too are freed and released from that bondage, freed to live now for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Genesis chapter 22. We thank you for the whole Bible. We thank you that in your kindness and in your mercy you spared Isaac and yet his story so powerfully points us forward to the story of the true lamb, the one who was slain, your son, your only beloved child, 
the son who was obedient in all things to you, the son who died as a sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. Father, give us Abraham's faith that we, like him, would truly believe you even in the face of unimaginable consequences, that we would believe you and so trust Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.